When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by Time Doctor. Measure and improve productivity wherever your people work. With accurate and employee-friendly time and activity tracking, you can empower your staff to work from the office, home, or anywhere else with total peace of mind. Time Doctor gives you detailed, in-depth analytics for a real-time view of you and your team so you can manage productivity, engagement, and staff attrition in your business. So why wait? Go ahead and join over half a million happy customers and unlock the power of visibility, accountability, and productivity with Time Doctor. We've been using Time Doctor in our own business for weeks now, and I can't wait to share with you how it's going and why Time Doctor is here to stay in our business. Start a free trial today. Visit Time Doctor's website over at www.timedoctor.com. Again, start a free trial at timedoctor.com to get started. Welcome to the $100 MBA show, business lessons you can count on. I'm your host, your coach, your teacher, Omar Zenholm. I'm also the co-founder of Webinar Ninja, an independent software company I started with my co-founder back in 2014. Just a quick announcement before we jump into today's episode. Just in case you missed it, episodes now will be published on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays every single week. This gives you the opportunity to listen to every episode and give you a day in between to implement what you learned. And of course, we have 2,300 business lessons in our archives for you to dig in. Just make sure you follow the show so you have access to our back catalog. Today's episode is a special extended interview episode with my buddy and highly successful entrepreneur, Steve Chu. Steve Chu is the host of the popular podcast, My Wife Quit Her Job, as well as the highly successful blog and website, MyWifeQuitHerJob.com. And in today's episode, through our conversation together, he's going to share how you can earn $2 million plus a year working only 20 hours a week. Steve is a little bit of an expert on this through his own life experience. In fact, he just published a book called The Family First Entrepreneur. And it's all about not ever having to choose between making money and spending time with your family. In our conversation together, we learn a little bit about Steve's story, how he became who he is today, and how you too can be a family first entrepreneur and spend more time enjoying life and not just worrying about the business. Super excited to share this conversation with you. Steve is an old friend, so it was a real open and honest conversation. Let's get into it. Let's get down to business. As we're going to learn in today's conversation with Steve Chu, several years ago, Steve's wife quit her job, and that's where the name of his blog comes from in his podcast, My Wife Quit Her Job. She quit her job to spend more time raising a family, being more present for their kids. This means Steve needed to come up with a business that can support both of them. That business is Bumblebee Linens. These are wedding handkerchiefs, super niche, and a booming business. This is a seven-figure e-commerce store that him and his wife actually started working on. A few years later, they found themselves right where they started, consumed with work and not focused on their family. This was a wake-up call for Steve, and he was like, I got to do something about this. So he created some rules, some systems in his business so that he can still continue to make money, but still have plenty of time to spend with his family. 
This has been a passion for him for several years, and that's why he wrote the book, The Family First Entrepreneur. So we're going to jump into the conversation with Steve. We're going to learn a little bit about his background, how he got started, and how is he doing this? How is he able to make money while not working crazy hours? Let's jump into the conversation with Steve Chu. Steve Chu, awesome to have you, man. How's everything going? What's up, Omar? So happy to be here. I know. Uh, You're an old-time friend. Uh, We've known each other for years. I feel like you're one of those people like, once uh, we see each other again, it's like time hasn't you know passed. It's it's pretty cool. Um, I remember we hung hung out uh, in uh, FinCon back in 2015. Remember that? Yep, of course. That was and that was a yeah. Go ahead. What's funny about you and Nicole is that you guys are goofy and silly. So I felt right at home. Like the, I think you busted on me the first time we met, and I was like, okay, I like this guy. <laughs> yes, because I just feel like. Business is hard as it is. It's serious as it is. You don't have to make it harder by being too too hard on yourself and serious and buttoned up. You know, um, I I'm a big believer in humor. I was the youngest in my family growing up. I have two older sisters, so I used to use humor growing up to like break the tension. I used to make jokes to kind of like somebody who's in trouble or my dad's in a bad mood or something like that. You know, immigrant parents, of course, dad's in the bad mood. So yep. uh, <laughs> that's the default. But uh, <laughs> but that's uh, that's a story for another day. But yeah, I, I, and I think that what makes our relationship interesting is because I, I, you're in a world that I really respect because, you know, you run a really successful e-commerce business. You teach people how to run great e-commerce businesses. I was an e-commerce, I had an e-commerce store one of my first businesses uh, in uh, 2010, uh, I, I had a custom tailor clothing for men. Um, and I got out of that business because I just hated that business model. I was just like, I don't want to deal with stock. I don't want to deal with, you know, inventory. But then I see people like you that make it work. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I want to start off uh, a little bit uh, about e-commerce and things like that. But before we get into all that, right, I'm going to talk about like the challenges of that, the the common mistakes people see when it comes to growing that kind of business and balancing their life and all that kind of stuff. But I talked a little bit about my family growing up. I want to learn a little about where where did you grow up? Your parents are immigrants, right? They 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 immigrated. are first generation. Yep. And where so, whereabouts from? Yeah. So I grew up in Potomac, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And my parents, actually, they have an interesting story. My dad actually left his entire family from mainland China to go to Taiwan by himself. Mm-hmm. And then he made it over to the U.S. My mom had a cushier life. She uh, she went to Taiwan University and came over here on like a research fellowship. But I was brought up always from the start to the finish to just go to a good college. You know how it is, Omar. Where are you? Yeah. Go to a good college, find a good job, work there for the rest of your life. Yep. Essentially. And I never, to be honest with you, I never really thought about starting a business, but I, the hand was kind of forced upon me uh, when my wife told me she wanted to quit to take care of our kids. Mm. And that was the start. I love it. I love it. And um, so my parents, they immigrated from Egypt. They came to the States in the late sixties. Me and my sisters were born here. My mom actually came first. Then my dad came after because he had to close some things off in the Egypt. Um, And it's people don't realize this. Like people think like immigrants, they come to, you know, the West, America, the UK, whatever, Australia, and they think like, you know, they just slip into society and everything's easy for them. And, you know, they just take all the benefits and like, no, like my, my parents, they came, 
they didn't recognize their degrees. Like they're college graduates in Egypt and they didn't recognize their degree in Egypt. They had to redo their education while making money, while getting like my mom is a, she was a graduate. She was a registered dietitian. She had to be an elevator operator, right? For her first wow. few years so okay. she could pay for her college so she can learn a new language. She doesn't know anybody. She doesn't figure, she has to figure everything out. Where do I get groceries? Where do I get a haircut? Where do I, you know, get my driver's license? It's like, it's real survival, right? So if that's, you know, our parents are experiencing that, this is the commonality I have with people that grew up with, you know, their, their first generation, their their parents are, uh, are immigrants. Is that like when your parents have done all that then you come into the picture you're born you're you're being raised by them like you have no excuses like what are you talking about get on the bus go to school and if you get me a b you're grounded that's it oh you know like and it's just that's how it is and that's the standard and that's normal for us right and then it absolutely is yeah yeah and then you go over jimmy's house and it's just like wow they have all this great stuff everything works oh my god they don't, they don't reuse their, their Ziploc bags. They don't, you know, like all that kind of stuff. <laughs> they use the dishwasher. Oh my God. I know it's not a dish rack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how, how much of that environment growing up has helped you be resilient as an entrepreneur and how much of it is just who you are as a person? I was actually, I just had a conversation with somebody about this because I believe that I, I, I don't want to say I suffered because I had it much easier than my parents, but my dad was always like, suck it up, just do it. So I studied for the SATs when I was in the fourth grade so I could get into this nerd camp. I think you had to get like a thousand in like the fifth grade in order to qualify. And then ever since, I, I've always been pushed to do mm. stuff, to, to get good grades. And part of the reason was because my brother was so damn smart. I think I blame it on him. Mm. He got like 1550 or something like that on his first try and he went to Harvard, he went to Harvard Law, and now he's a judge. And I just had to follow in these footsteps and it was really hard for me. Right. And, and I, I definitely resonate with that. Uh, you know, learning the SATs in fourth grade, people don't realize like, why? Why would they do that to their son? What's going on here? And the best way for me to explain that is a great joke by Ronnie Chang, who's a great comedian. I'm a big fan of comedy. And he talks about um, America being like the NBA, like you made the league, right? And like the, your parents are like, you can't mess this up. Like we brought you to the NBA. You got to train hard. You got to do everything you can. Watch your diet, your nutrition. You can't be like going to the clubs, right? And <laughs> and that's exactly the mentality. Like your parents are just like you. Like I didn't come here and mess around, right? I I, didn't, I leave my family and all my friends and my respect and my prestige and my job and my mother tongue language so that you can go ahead and skip school. Like, you know, like it, 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 it's a lot of people, they don't get it, but it's all about perspective. And, and I, I really do feel like I am really lucky. I feel so lucky. I grew up in that environment because I like not working hard. sounds so weird to me. Like, it's like, what are you talking about? Like if I sold my business today, I'd be like, what, what do I want to work on next? Not what, how am I yep. going to relax and waste my time or, or waste my money. Like it's just so there's something about that that just gets built in when you're young um, that I feel very lucky. Um, what was like your first entrepreneurial experience? Uh, was it your your wife quitting her job and you starting a business or did you do something on the side when you were younger or what? Uh, when I was younger, I used to sell throwing stars. If you want to go back that far, 
And then people would play around with it and throw them. And then I just collect them off the ground and then sell them again. But my first real thing that was making money was I used to do Craigslist eBay arbitrage. And at the time I was just messing around. I knew a lot about computers because that's my background. So I would just go on Craigslist, find people who were moving out, buy all their computer equipment, strip it apart and sell them for pieces. And that ended up making me, you know, around 1500 a month at, at the height for, yeah. for doing very little work. Yeah. And I love these examples because uh, I did arbitrage as one of my first business ideas. I sold it rare air Jordans back when, before it was cool. This is like 2001, 2002, where I did, I would find somebody who's looking for a certain pair and then find them on, I'll do all the legwork and then sell to them and make the cut, make the difference. Um, and I was like, this is easy money. So I didn't understand why everybody's not doing this. And I just realized, oh, because it's hard work. And most people don't want to do this. <laughs> most people don't want to be on looking for shoes and trying to find and make margins and shipping it out and doing all this while having a job, you know? Um, but I, I love these stories of side hustle because I think they're really important because they help you start to discover what kind of entrepreneur you want to be, what business you want to be into. Um, was there ever like a, a venture or a business or an idea that didn't pan out and you're just like, you turn, let's do something else. You know, what's funny is I don't think I've ever had an outright failure where I had to stop. I think uh, even with this e-commerce store, what we first started doing didn't quite work out, but then we just pivoted and pivoted. And I don't go into anything mm. unless I'm going to follow through on it for at least three years, three to five years. Usually I won't start something right. because I, and maybe it's the way I was brought up, but my dad always taught me to just, if you're going to do something, you got to give it some time. So mm -hmm. anything I do, I'm, I'm committed to it for many years. And I think during that period of many years, if you stick at something and try new things, sooner or later, you'll find something that works. I love it. Um, okay. I'm going to roll up my metaphorical sleeves here because I want to kind of pull back the current on your life and your business. Uh, so your, your main business you guys have an e-commerce store that sells wedding supplies, correct? Uh, wedding handkerchiefs. Yeah. What are handkerchiefs? It's very niche. I love it. Yes, very niche. Okay, so, uh, so there's uh, two main businesses, ahead. right? There's Bumblebee Linens, which sells handkerchiefs and linens, and then the the other side is the content business, which is a completely different business where I teach others e-commerce. I also run an annual event, YouTube channel, podcast, you name it. Right. Two distinct and, and, businesses. But Bumblebee started first, correct? Correct. Bumblebee started first. This episode is sponsored by Time Doctor. Measure and improve productivity wherever your people work. We've been using Time Doctor in our own company for about two months now, and we've been sharing the experience along the way on the podcast every single week. And this is our last installment. So the first thing I want to say is Time Doctor is here to stay in our business. When we started out, we told Time Doctor, we're not sure how this is going to go. We're going to give it a go for three months. But I can tell you right now that we are absolutely sold. We're going to keep Time Doctor, even though we're actually building a in-person team here in Sydney as a part of our bigger remote team, but everybody's still going to use Time Doctor because we've learned a ton about how we work, how to be more efficient, how to best serve our customers when things are busy, how to make sure team members are not overworked and there's work-life balance, how to use real data in front of us to make decisions. For example, via the data, I now know 
how much time I'm spending on product and I need to spend a little bit more time in that department. We changed some of our customer service shifts around to serve a busier time to lower our first response time. We even made some tough decisions and some key hires because of this data. And here's the bottom line. You can't make real solid decisions if you don't have the numbers to make those decisions with. And if you're not tracking how you're working, then you're just guessing. And that's just the truth. And it kind of hurts because I know for years I was not doing that. But there's no reason to cry over spilt milk. So let's just make sure we're doing the right thing moving forward. And that's why I encourage you all to give Time Doctor a try. Even if you just get started by tracking your own time and then roll it out to your whole team. Join half a million happy customers, including me, and unlock the power of visibility, accountability, and productivity with Time Doctor by starting a free trial today. Visit Time Doctor over at timedoctor.com to get started. And if you're wondering how Time Doctor got started, we're going to have one of the co-founders, Liam Martin, on the show to learn about the Time Doctor story and how they built this amazing business. So my question is, is that when you started Bumblebee, was it just like, I need to make a buck? Or were you like, I'm going to design the perfect business where my lifestyle and my happiness comes first and my family... And uh, it's going to take me a few years, but this is like the roadmap. Or did you figure it out, out as you went, went about and started the business? No, absolutely not. Uh, it was kind of created out of panic. Uh, so we live in the Silicon Valley, which is very expensive. You pretty much need two incomes in, a, you know, in order to get a good house in a good school district. And when my wife told me she wanted to quit her job, she was making six figures at the time. And I was fully on board with having her stay at home because when I grew up, because our parents worked so hard, I didn't get to see him as much as I would have liked. Uh, I used to play club volleyball. We were talking about that before we started hitting record. And I would go travel to these tournaments and I'd play really well. And I'd look over on the sideline and my parents weren't there a lot of times, whereas my friend's parents were. And so I was really on board with that. And so we just had to search for ways to replace that income. And we had a couple of ideas that didn't quite pan out. Like we wanted to do uh, this food prep place where people go and they pack their food and take it home. I, we also thought about opening a Kumans, which is like a study prep, which is mostly Asian clientele, I would say. Hmm. Uh, and then we settled on the handkerchiefs because we had this need when we first got married. And our goal in the beginning really was $60,000. Like if we can make $5,000 a month, hmm. we'll be good. And we had a backup plan in the worst case scenario. We would just live off of my income and, you know, tone down our lifestyle. Or worst case scenario, my wife would just go back to work. Okay. So it was like, let's make a buck. And I and I let's like the fact that you're being honest about this because um a lot of and and, and another thing I want to extract from that story is a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that I know personally, they don't overthink things. They're just like, hey, this worked for me. I'm gonna try it. This is a need I have. I'm scratching my own itch. If it doesn't work out, I'll pivot. They don't spend six months, you know, creating a one-page business plan or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, asking their friends and family, "Do you think this is a good idea?" They don't like, you know, play business on the internet, on Twitter, and on Facebook, and kind of like, you know, try to uh, crowdsource some uh, some price points. You rolled up your sleeves and said, "Let's just get it going and see what happens." Um, and I think that there's that's a very missing element, especially in new entrepreneurs where they take action, you have to take action because you're not going to have all the information. And the only way you're going to get all the information 
is to take action. What are some of the first lessons you learned when you took action, when you started that business? Yeah. So here's how it all started. Well, my wife, when we were engaged to get married, she knew she was going to cry at the wedding and we paid all this money for photography. She didn't want to be seen drying her tears of joy with ratty tissues. And we looked all over the place for hankies. We couldn't find any except for these factories in China, but the mineral water quantity was a lot. So mm -hmm. we ended up ordering a couple hundred. We used maybe a handful of them. And then just to get rid of them, we put them on eBay and they ended up selling like hotcakes. So to answer your question, you always want to validate what you're going to sell on a marketplace or something where there's already a built-in audience before you commit to making that larger order. I love it. Um, and you didn't think about, Hey, this is going to be a big business. Let me fire up a website. Like you're just like, Hey, I could sell it right here. Minimal viable, you know, solution here to put it on eBay. Um, and a lot of people uh, don't realize that uh, that is step one where you just need to validate. And another problem a lot of people have is that they stay there. Like they just, just stay on eBay, they stay on Instagram and they don't take the next leap and say, okay, this got legs. How do I create this and make it my own brand, my own business? W what was that journey like? Yeah, so what ended up happening was eBay, we kind of hit our limit on eBay. Mm -hmm. Like things weren't growing and we had this goal of $5,000. And not only that, the eBay customers were kind of a pain. They would haggle with us, right? Mm. Hey, can you do it for like five bucks? And the customer service along those lines just ended up not being very convenient for us. And it, 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 a lot of fortuitous things happened at the same time, actually. So my brother-in-law, he had a job at Google working for the AdWords division. And he was like, hey, you should just put up your own site and I'll teach you how to run AdWords to your site. What year is this? And that's how, this is 2007. Okay, good Back time. Back when AdWords Early was days. super cheap. Yeah. yeah. And then another thing happened when my buddy, he decided to start a photography business where he was selling his photos because I was at first really scared about putting on the website. This was before Shopify, before Amazon, everything. Mm -hmm. And he showed me that there were a bunch of free ways to put up a website. So he showed me how to do that. My brother-in-law showed me how to run AdWords. All of a sudden we had sales and a website. Yeah, and you were shown and then you just did it. Like you just, yeah, you didn't just think did like, it. let me, you didn't like think about it. Like, oh, okay, that's good. Now I know that. And let me just think about it while you, like you can't drag your feet in business. Like this, that's the thing that I try to tell people all the time is that the best product doesn't always win. The best marketing doesn't always win, but often the person that takes action constantly and is first to first to market, first to understanding, first to just get your brand out there, you win. You, it's just because uh, time is not on your side. You need to kind of make sure you get ahead. Now let's fast forward. You you okay. now have multiple businesses. You have your your e-commerce business, Bumblebee. You, you run courses. You have a great YouTube channel. I see the plaque behind you. You've been successful with video and you became a personality and a brand. You got a great podcast as well. Uh, my wife quit her job. Uh, how did this evolve? And where are you right now in terms of like work-life balance? Did you work to the point right now where you're just like, I don't need to work as much because I have everything passive? And kind of walk me through the stages of building that empire. Yeah. So the reason my wife quit her job, got started actually, is because my friends, they used to make fun of me for selling hankies. It's not, it wasn't our first choice, right? And it's kind of embarrassing from a guy's perspective. 
Uh, but once it started getting successful, my friends started asking me questions. And so I just documented all that stuff on the blog. And what ended up happening is none of them read it. And uh, But I attracted a bunch of random people who wanted to understand what how we did it, how we started our e-commerce store and everything. And that led to a training class that led to a podcast that led to a YouTube channel and the event. So that's how it got started. Okay. And when it comes to making a million, two million a year, uh, and now you like, I, I know you personally, so I've seen you in real life. You are somebody that goes to like warrior games and you have free time and you go see your daughter's volleyball games. And like, I, I noticed that you, you're not working all the time. Like you actually have a pretty good work-life balance. Uh, how did that all happen? Because building a business is hard work. It's a lot of sacrifice. It's a lot of long hours. Uh, how did one, did you cut back the hours and start scaling and get out of that kind of cycle? But two, how did you get to the point where you didn't need to in terms of revenue? Yeah. So I always had this philosophy, like I don't like doing grunt work. And if I can, I will always write software or find some way to automate it. I'm actually not really into employees either. I'm kind of anti-employee. And this probably stems from the fact that I used to be an engineering director and I had all these reports and they were great at doing their mm. job. But I found there was a lot of overhead in dealing with personalities, keeping people motivated. And there's always this like hidden cost of actually managing people. And people are unpredictable. Whereas a good old computer will do stuff without complaining forever. So my background is engineering. So I will code whatever we can to make things automated. And we just happen to be living in this great age right now of AI, where you can actually have a computer handle most of your stuff. Uh, just a couple of other principles that allow me to work less. I generally don't focus on things that require me to constantly be doing something. And let me just use an example here. Mm -hmm. I don't like social media. And I have friends who are really good at social media. Person who's really good on Instagram posts seven times a day. I have a friend who does Facebook really well, posts 21 times a day. But when you stop, the traffic stops. So I prefer to do things where I do it once and the traffic comes for a long time. So I have blog posts that I've written 10 years ago that still generate traffic. I have videos that I've recorded three years ago that still generate views. Whatever I can do to leverage my time, I try to do. I like that high leverage activity. Um, and and looking at what you do, you blog, you podcast, you have a YouTube channel. All these are evergreen pieces of content that people can find and search for. And you know, this is all kind of backbone SEO. So uh, I like that philosophy. Um, when was the point where you're like, okay, I don't need to work 40 hours a week now. I'm making enough. Was that 100,000, 500,000 in sales? Like wh what was it where you're just like, okay, I can now, you know, kick it back in a different gear? Yeah. So I'm going to be upfront with you, Omar. Like I got caught up in my ego. So it, when you're not used to making a large sum of money all at once, you tend to go crazy, or at least I don't want to speak for anyone else. I went crazy. I was like, okay, we hit this goal. Let's raise it 30%. Let's raise it another 30%. And we kept moving the goalposts till at one point, my wife just came up to me and said, hey, we make so much more than we spend and I don't want to do this anymore. I'm burnt out. It sucks, right? We had that conversation and I realized she was right because we started our businesses to spend more time with family. Mm. And here we were not even spending even a small fraction of what we were making. So what was the point? So I credit my wife for getting things under control and controlling my ego. And I, you can probably relate to this, right? I'm in a mastermind group with a whole bunch of really successful people. 
And when I hear that someone else is making millions of dollars, I want to make millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And the way I combat that today is we don't have any revenue goals for the e-commerce business or anything. We pay ourselves what we need to live comfortably and everything else is gravy. And the way I keep my mind going, and we, we kind of alluded to this earlier, like we'd be bored if we didn't do anything, right? Every year I focus on one thing and I go all out and I do it well. And whatever happens, happens. So this year is my book launch. Last year was my YouTube channel and I hit 200K subs. The year before that, it was TikTok. The year before mm. that, it was paid ads. That's how I operate today. Cool. Um, so I, I love everything you just said right now because I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that because, um, or maybe I'm not challenging you. Maybe I, first I'll ask this question. Is your goal to live a great lifestyle, um, making enough money to meet your needs, or is your goal to uh, be extraordinarily wealthy uh, and build a business that's basically, you know, private jet money? I I, I would say this. I've taught a class with over five thousand people. Most people just want freedom to do what they want and spend time with who they want. That's always been my case. I'm not attracted to the private jet lifestyle or, or anything like that. You give me enough money. Here's the thing. I think anyone out there can just make a couple million dollars with very few employees and very few expenses if they want. If you want to start something really big, like an Amazon or Facebook, I think then you need a lot of employees and it gets a lot more stressed. Yeah. But I would say for most of the people that I've ever met or encountered through blogging or podcasting and whatnot, most people just want to make a good living and have freedom. Yeah. W would you agree it has a lot to do with the, the business itself or the business model? Um, the reason why I'm asking this question is because, you know, I run a software company, Webinar Ninja. I'm heavily in the SaaS world where it's like, it's very binary. It's like you either choose yeah. to build a, a software company that is a lifestyle business that makes sense to me and you keep it lean and basically no one even knows about you, or you build a business that like makes a dent in the universe. It's like a all out sprint where you're working 80 hours a week for three years, you make your investors happy, you exit, you never have to work again. Like these are usually the two paths and there's really very little there's a few companies in the middle, the ConvertKits of the world, the base camps, the Wistias, but they're really the exception. Like that, that, like they're not a really good example to to look at. And actually, it's quite dangerous to look at them because it, yeah. they have a lot, a lot of um, things going for them that is not typical. Um, would you agree? It depends on the business model. Would you agree with that kind of uh, layout in terms of software? And what about content marketing, uh, YouTube yeah. channel, creator businesses? So I used to design hardware and software for a living mm. uh, at a Fortune 500 company. And I can tell you this, I think in the software space, it's especially hard because software is so easily copied unless there's something algorithmic behind it. So you might have a lead at some point, but someone can just say, hey, I want that feature to an engineer and they'll have it. Unless you have something underneath it, underlying that, uh, you know, that you have to bolster your business. Uh, I'm also of the belief though, and I want to talk a little about e-commerce in this case. I feel like everything in this world is pretty much a commodity. There are very few things that are novel or inventions. So the way you sell it has to do with everything. The emotions that you can evoke in your product are is everything. Uh, have you heard of the company Dr. Squatch, Omar? No. They, they sell soap. Okay. Soap for men. But they're a multi-million dollar company and they sell soap. But the way they sell it is very interesting. 
if you've ever watched one of their commercials, it's of like a guy and his girlfriend and the girlfriend's like stiffing him go, oh my God, you smell so good. I want to take you right now. What they're selling really is sex, right? And I don't know if you've read the book Cash Advertising before, Yeah, but it states, yeah, the life force eight. If you can evoke one of the emotions of the life force eight, you can sell anything. And once you have someone and once you've established a brand and all a brand really is, is repeated exposure to a name, people will become loyal to you and they'll use your service. Like I know Webinar Ninja isn't the cheapest service around in that webinar space, mm-hmm. but you guys have created a good name for yourself of trust. And that's why people will sign up for your Webinar Ninja over other tools. Yeah. And I agree with you. Branding has a lot to do w- when you're in a commodity space where you have to differentiate when you have to have a USP. Um, you know, uh, we have like the survey that we ask people when when people buy, and we ask them like, "Why did you buy?" And most people say uh, things that have nothing to do with the software. Like, we align with their values. I really liked the fact that you have a community. I really like, uh, you know, uh, that Nicole is pretty cool. Like, whatever things have nothing to do with the software, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And the, and the interesting thing is that it has to be something other than the software if you're gonna if you're gonna be able to compete. Um, and if I look at some of the businesses and the brands out there, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's like Dollar Shave Club or whatever that kind of blew up, um, it's because they have personality, and it has a lot to do with that. You talked about not loving social media, and you had a year of TikTok, you know, goal. What did you learn that year and how do you marry having a brand and being not like a lover of social media? Because I'm in this camp. I do not like social media. I don't like being on it, but I know it's kind of like one of those things that we kind of have to dance around in our business. My mom always tells me I don't have the face for uh, social media. That's beside the point. (laughs) Um, But YouTube, you're you're good (laughs) in YouTube. All right, so TikTok was an experiment because I think of TikTok as one of the better kinds of social media. Do you consider YouTube social media? No, I don't. I, I feel like it's, to me, it's the it's an alternative to Netflix. TikTok is similar because I have posts that I put on TikTok that a year later are still generating views. It's not like Instagram. It's not like Facebook. Uh, it, the, the life cycle is not as strong as YouTube, but it's still there. Hmm. I'm just not a fan of things where you post it, it might go viral in two days and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. So I actually paid someone to operate my Twitter and I didn't feel comfortable doing that for Instagram or Facebook because there's photos involved. Mm -hmm. But for Twitter, you can just tell someone, Hey, here are all my blog posts, here are my podcasts and whatnot, and just have them extract out nuggets in a spreadsheet that you can just quickly approve. Mm. Uh, I I, I think social media is actually a good way to grow if you have no money at all. But And certain industries, I think, lend itself to social media more. Like if you're selling apparel Mm. or jewelry in the e-com space, I think social media is probably your best bet because SEO and that sort of thing won't work as well. Yeah, I'm a big uh, believer in that, that if you're B2C, if you're going straight to consumer, uh, social media is great. It's actually really good, especially if you have like, uh, what do they call like... um, branded content or native content, like TikTok is big on native content where like you have an influencer, you know, demoing your product, your physical product. Uh, There's like this teeth whining toothpaste that's like all over the place now um, because all these people are using it. And it's very, it's very powerful. Um, And it's interesting because B2B, the market I'm in, um, 
they're migrating off a lot of the paid ads and a lot of social media because the cost per acquisition is getting bonkers now. And they're looking for other ways. They're looking at like, you know, freemium. They're looking at, you know, kind of acquiring customers, even through sales calls and, and uh, you know, even webinars, things like that. So it's just interesting to see how each market, but you're right. I think it's also good to be on social media if you're a beginner because it gives you reps. It gives you a chance yep. like, hey, I'm going to vlog every day. I'm going to put out a, a little message every day. I'm going to just produce content. Um, yeah. And my only thing is, is that like, don't just stay there. A lot of people just stay on social media and they never build their brand outside of social media. Here's what's interesting about your last statement. So for our store, Bumblebee Linens, I actually started doing an analysis on all our channels. And I noticed that Facebook was the worst performing channel in terms of revenue per visitor. Mm. And the reason why is because a lot of our big customers are event and wedding planners who buy our stuff in bulk and they're finding us through Google, whereas those people don't really live on Facebook. So no. it pays to check, right? Yeah. Know your audience. That's true. And yeah. that's, and it's the opposite for us because our audience are mostly entrepreneurs are in their second career. Um, so they're maybe mid thirties and above. They've built a business. They want to be able to promote or market their business through content with webinars. And uh, Facebook is the main game. Facebook is where they are, you know. And 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 I don't want like for me like I we've tried some mediums that are have a younger audience, whether it's you know ads on TikTok or otherwise. And like I I can't um, sell to these people. They're on money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're too young. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's definitely it's definitely good to know your demographic. So. I want to get into your new book, The Family First Entrepreneur. I'm going to ask you a little bit about what that exactly means. But before, why did you decide to write a book? Because I've met and talked to many authors, and everybody has a different why. Um, yeah. And I want to hear your why. So I'll give you two answers. The first one is that I've always felt that most of the entrepreneurship advice that I see out there doesn't apply to me. It's from single dudes who have all the time in the world to do whatever they want. And I have kids and I'm trying to juggle all these things. And, you know, I want to see a book mm -hmm. from someone who has a family who actually has family values other than just killing it, man, or driving these Ferraris and Lambos and that sort of thing. The other reason I wanted to write the book was because it was on my bucket list. And quite frankly, I want to take my kids to the bookstore, show them the book, and say, hey, your dad created this. You guys can do anything that you want. And the other reason is I've been blogging for over a decade now. I've had my YouTube channel, my podcast. My mom has never listened or read a single thing that I've ever done. But as soon as I told her that I was writing a book that was published by HarperCollins, she went nuts. And all of a sudden she was like, hey, where can I get the book? Can I read it? I really want to read it. And I'm like, all right. I finally hit the Asian nerve. Yeah, you're to get the respect of my mom. Yes. <laughs> so. That that is worth writing the book right there. It's <laughs> it because is. we all have that scenario. I could tell you, my, my parents, my dad, vaguely understands what I do. My mom has a better understanding because she's a little bit more tech savvy. But there there is a difference when you you basically uh, resonate with them in an area they understand. You know. Um, and uh, I, I think of Hassan Minhaj, who's a comedian. Hassan, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, he talks about 
um, you know, uh, his dad didn't get his respect until he was on The Daily Show because he understands The Daily Show. It's like the news. They wear a suit. They're respectful. You're not like hawking tickets outside of the comedy cellar, you know? And I, I think that was kind of this is kind of your moment, your uh, your daily your daily show moment. So tell us a little bit about what's your definition of a family first entrepreneur? Yeah, a family first entrepreneur really is someone who prioritizes family or free time over just a pure drive for money and scaling is, is really in a nutshell what it is. Mm. And I've just come to look. Have you ever heard of the four burners theory? Yeah. Yeah. So here's in case your listeners haven't heard of it. Uh, your life is defined by four burners, family, business, uh, sorry, family, work, friends, and health. And in order to do one thing well, you have to turn off at least one burner. If you want to do two things well, if you want to do it even better, you have to turn off two burners. And if you're Elon Musk, you turn off three and like work is your only burner. Basically, there's trade-offs in life. Mm. And you basically have to prioritize what you want. And family-first entrepreneurs prioritize the family burner and I'd probably say the health burner. Yeah. And and I like this analogy and I like that you said this because um, it reminds me of a conversation that Joe Rogan had with um, Ryan Holiday. And he was he was asking him, like, why are these great leaders, all these like amazing people, Winston Churchill, Gandhi, Marcus Aurelius, why were these people like their their offspring is often they're often horrible people, right? Why are they such bad dads? And he's like, because they're busy. They're like they're just like they're overworked. They're just like their whole life is their mission, and therefore uh, that is the price. Like, and I think. Why, why your book is so important is at least highlights, do you want to pay that price? Whether your family is, is like the, you know, your wife or your, your partner and your children, or even just your, your partner in life, if you don't have children, do you want to sacrifice those relationships at all costs? Um, and I, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I feel like you probably felt compelled to write this book because you probably had a moment where you had to ask that question to yourself. And yeah. tell me a little bit about that moment and what was the kind of the wake up call for you to say, you know what, I need to reevaluate. Yeah, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but we got on the Today Show for our store and we were only on for 12 seconds, that's it. But that led to 7X the daily order volume for a period of about two weeks. And at the time it was just my wife and I and this one other person and you know, publicly, you think it's cool. You hit the Today Show, you hit the jackpot, and you're getting 7x the, your average order volume. But fulfilling those orders nearly broke us. And that was actually the period where my wife said she was burnt out as well. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I was planning other media experience, you know, <laughs> other media opportunities, but we had that talk when she broke down crying, not tears of joy this time, it wasn't the wedding. And she was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me a hand. And that's when I realized, right? <laughs> and and yeah. this is what most people don't realize, Omar. Growing fast, no matter what you do, is always painful. Yeah. It sucks. And I've interviewed so many people on my podcast, 450 people. And I remember this one dude who hit 2 million bucks in like six months. And the whole episode was like, you know, rah, rah, you know, how'd you do that? It was so cool. As soon as I hit the stop button, I was like, hey, how sucky was that? And he was like, dude, it was terrible. I was so burned out. I was so stressed mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. You don't actually hear those stories. You so don't. slow and steady growth is almost always better than sudden unexpected growth. One of the things I tell myself, I try to remind other entrepreneurs is exactly what you're saying right now. 
is to remind yourself why. Why are you doing this? Like, the funny thing about your story that I find incredibly interesting is that your wife quit her job so that she can spend more time with the kids and the family. You then build a business and you find yourself right back where you were before. And you're like, yep. oh, we're, we're, we're mission not accomplished, right? Like we're off course here. And then you had that wake up call. And by the way, like it's actually you know, as bad as it was, it's actually a good problem to have. Like, okay, we learned through success that this is not something that we should be doing because it's it's hurting our family. Um, what are the changes you made at that point? Where it's like, okay, how do we uh, realign ourselves? Yeah. So number one, no no revenue goals. I think revenue goals are kind of dumb. Mm. Um, instead, you just have like a a goal that's related to some sort of metric in your business, maybe. Uh, because there's always ways to play around with revenue too, and once you hit certain goals. You know, you always just move the goalposts. Um, the other thing that we do is really we, here's one thing that, that your listeners can take away. We focus a lot more on our existing customers. I find a lot of people don't do that. They spend all their money and time on new customer acquisition when it's a lot easier to just get someone to open up their wallets again. I think I mentioned earlier, or maybe I didn't mention yet, but we're in the wedding industry and you would think that there's not a lot of repeat business, right? The divorce rate is high in the US, but it's not high enough that people get married multiple times. So 12% of our business is repeat, just 12, but it represents 36% of our revenues. Mm. And we already talked about it a little bit. Like I go through and I find our best customers and I call them on the phone. Like I pick up like this thing that you talk into. Most people can't relate to that. And I say, hey, do you happen to be, we noticed you purchased an abnormally large number of linens. Do you happen to be a planner or do you have future needs? And if they say yes, I go, okay, here's a coupon code. Here's a dedicated rep. We'll make sure your order makes it to its destination. And from there, we have a customer for life. Mm. And by doing that, we have a solid foundation for business going forward. And we just keep doing this and keep attracting larger and larger customers every year. I love this because one of the things I learned the hard way in my over 20 years of entrepreneurship is that hard work does not pay off. Now, hard work is important. But hard work alone is actually really detrimental. You have to work smarter. You have to work on the things that matter, right? If I spend 16 hours a day on things that really are like $10, $100 tasks that don't really bring in the money, that uh, that doesn't really you know, uh, actually uh, help our customers or grow the business, it's really a waste of time. And I just end up with a year of exhaustion right? Versus eight hours or four hours of things that really move the needle. Like you just mentioned that bring in 10,000, 20,000, $100,000 in revenue. And I just work smarter. I just work on the things that work. I double down on the things that, that, that work. Uh, and it took me a while to get to that point to realize, Oh, I'm, I'm doing like 10 things. What are the top two things that are actually moving the needle? Those two things are actually making like 90% of all my revenue. Why am I doing all these eight things? Just delete them. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think our immigrant, parents kind of seeped in because like, hey, that's 10% of like the whatever dollar <laughs> yeah. amount that, why are you going to throw that away? Because it's costing yep. me eight hours. <laughs> you know, but you have to retrain yourself. And I think you you feel me there. <laughs> yeah, I do. I d definitely do. I, I do have those where I'm like, I should be cutting this, but it's it's a good amount of money and it's not that much effort. I can, I can do this, but all these little things add up over time. Totally. So. What now? You got your book coming out um, and I want to, just kind of step back a little bit. Um, and what are the next 10 years for you look like? What's your focus? Like are you, you kind of 
have an established business. You've kind of focused on a few things every year to, to build your businesses in different ways. Uh, what is this all for, for you? What do you, what, do, what is your goal in life in terms of like how the business can help you enrich your life? So the, the great thing about all of my businesses have been, they've been, they've been all synergistic. So I'll start something like the, I had the store and then I started the blog, but the blog relies on the store. So I, I use the store as a laboratory for my content and that leads to other things. Likewise, my YouTube channel and the conference, they all kind of add value to that. I think that if you want to go out like five or 10 years, I think once my kids go to college, I might try my hand in the SaaS game. Uh, just because it's something that I have a background in and it's mm -hmm. something I've always wanted to do. In the meantime, while my kids are here, my focus is going to be on them. But I'm like you. I'm always, I always need to be working on something. And what's great about already having these businesses is that I can use those businesses to fund whatever I want and not have to worry about the money or the risk. I think that's probably the biggest benefit. I love it. I want to wrap up with a question that I like to ask a lot of our entrepreneurs that come on the show um, we know a lot of the same people, like our network is kind of intertwined. Um, and I want to ask you the question, how much of your success is due to who you've known or who you've gotten to know over the years and how much, you know, versus like the knowledge that you've gained through, uh, studying and learning. Yeah, I would say if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say 65% who, you know, and the rest based on knowledge. And here's how I think about it. Every person that you know is like a lottery ticket. And I, I can just think of so many different ways that I was lucky. Like, am I lucky that my brother-in-law worked on AdWords? Am I lucky that my buddy just happened to be putting together the website? Am I lucky that a friend of mine just had me start selling on Amazon and grew my revenue? Well, each person that you meet, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, look at us here. Mm -hmm. I'm on your podcast now. And it was just luck that we we met each other. And I did that by going to an event. And, and people are just so important. So it might not directly affect your business, but like I said, it's like lottery tickets. The more you got, the more mm. chances for luck to happen. I like the way you look at it because I, I do see, uh, you know, the more people you know, it's kind of like you're creating your own luck. Like, um, Naval says it's like if you if you're doing a lot of things, you're trying new things, you're meeting people, kind of like kicking up dust. Like you have more opportunities, you have more chances for things to work out. Uh, you, you know, you uh, are into personal finance. So you went to FinCon. We met at FinCon. We talked to we we talked to each other. We got to know each other. You know, we stayed in touch. But there is effort on your point, our part. You had to buy a ticket. You had to fly to you know, North Carolina. You had to stay in touch with me over the years. You had to you know. Uh, uh, take whatever advice you got from your brother who works at Google and then do something with it and implement, you know? So I, I, what I love about it, it's kind of like a magnifier. I feel like, I feel like it really amplifies your efforts when you meet people. Um, and I, I found that the more you try your best to network. And when I say network, I mean, just make friends in the industry, make friends, meet people, go to parties, go to events, go to conferences, go to retreats, go to masterminds, whatever it might be. And the more you do that, the more you realize that people actually want to help you. Like people actually want to see you succeed. Almost like I don't I don't want to say that it's totally selfless, but in my experience, 
it's mostly selfless. Mostly, mostly people see yourself, they see themselves in you and they're kind of like, Hey, let me help you out. Knowing that one day, maybe you'll help them out or maybe not. But the point is, is that it, I think that if we make the effort, it always pays off in my, in my opinion. Um, and uh, I can name like multiple stories when it's paid off big time, some in little ways, but uh, this is a great example. We're having this conversation because we both made the effort to network. So Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, I loved our conversation. I love having conversation with people that we I know and and kind of got to know over the years because it's, it's really easy and, and fluid. If you want to leave our audience who is working day and night on their business, trying to get to the point where you are, where you have that work-life balance, what is one piece of advice you want to leave them with? I would say try to automate as much as you can. Uh, hire as a last resort. Take an effort to figure out what you're outsourcing if you do decide to outsource it. One of my philosophies is I always try to do everything myself in the beginning, get my hands dirty first. So for example, uh, in YouTube, I edited all my own videos and I realized I hated it, but I recorded myself editing them so that when I hired my editor, I just turned over those videos and we got up and running right away. So find ways to automate, find an app or software that can do what you want. If you can't, get your own hands dirty and then outsource kind of like as the last option. Love it, Steve. Thanks so much for being on the show and I'll check you uh, hopefully sooner than later. Absolutely. I've been meaning to make it out to your parts, actually. It's on my yeah. bucket list. Come so see us, man. <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah. Take care. What an amazing conversation with Steve Chu. Steve is a no-nonsense guy. I love the fact that when something's wrong in his business, something's wrong in his life, he takes action right away. But even better, he actually shares what he learns and what he's done through his blog, through his podcast, so that we can avoid that mistake and learn as well. And if you want to continue learning on how to grow a seven-figure business, but not work your brains out and not enough time for your family, pick up The Family First Entrepreneur by Steve Chu. You can order it right now on Amazon or wherever you buy books. But if you want to be really smart and get some bonuses, go to thefamilyfirstentrepreneur.com and you'll see some steps on how to order the book and get $690 in bonuses from Steve, including a six weeks side hustle challenge that's absolutely amazing. Go ahead and pick up the book, The Family First Entrepreneur, you won't regret it. Thanks so much for listening. Before I go, I want to leave you with this. I love sharing these stories and these conversations I have with other entrepreneurs because it proves to everybody, including myself, that we all have our own journeys. We all have our struggles. We all have our challenges. We all make mistakes. We all stumble. But the ones that succeed are the ones that keep moving forward, that keep moving forward despite the failures and the challenges and the falling on your face. Because the only way to lose is to quit. So keep your head up, keep moving forward, and learn from these entrepreneurs and their experiences. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you then. Take care.